This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Auth0, authentication made simple for developers. Modern authentication and identity can be hard, but Auth0 makes it easy. With Auth0, you can enable login with any social provider, have multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, and passwordless login all at the flip of a switch. Find out how to add authentication to your Angular 1 or 2 app in under 10 minutes at Auth0.com forward slash Angular. Hello, welcome to Angular Air. My name is Jeff Welfley. I am your host today. And we have a wonderful show in store for you uh, today talking about creating UI, UI libraries with Angular 2. It's a topic that I think most people that are starting to build Angular 2 apps for their um, company are starting to run into this particular kind of challenge. And we have a number of people on the panel today that are going to give some great insights um, before I get to that, though, I just want to mention we have been plugging the past month um, about John Papa and Dan Whalen's um, two-day intensive training course in Fort Lauderdale, which is going to be awesome. And it was supposed to be in the beginning of October, but then um, the hurricane hit. So um, just a heads up that it is um, still on. They moved it to November 4th and 5th. So if you are going to be in the area in Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale area, um, or you want to make a trip out of it, um, this is going to be a really awesome course, and you should definitely check it out. Go to ng-learn.com. Okay, on the panel today, uh, we have Dimitri. <laughs> He's uh, silent right now. Uh, and Justin Schwarzenberger. Hey, how's it going? And then Wesley Cho. Hello. And then our special guest today, uh, who has the first time on the show, is Kyle Ledbetter. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Kyle, uh, you haven't been on the show before. Why don't you give us kind of an introduction to yourself and let us know a little bit about your background and your interest in um, UI libraries with Angular 2. Yeah, great. Uh, so, I am currently the UX architect and kind of like UX director at Teradata. Uh, Teradata was traditionally... Uh, a big hardware company, multi-million dollar appliances, but we're doubling down in the, the cloud space and open source. So uh, I came up in other companies like eBay and Sears and in open source and have loved Angular uh, since the early days. And we jumped on Angular 2 as soon as we went to ng-conf. And now we're building a, a massive uh, open source UI platform on top of Angular 2 and Angular 2 material. Very cool. And we're definitely going to dive into the details of that and um, just UI libraries in general. But I want to go continue to go around the panel and kind of get um, the experience or what interest level or the angle that uh, the rest of you guys here today are coming out of um, how you work with UI libraries today, um, what you've done in the past. Uh, Wesley, let, let's start with you. Uh, yes, uh, I'm currently a lead engineer at a company called MindFlash. Uh, our product is an LMS. And uh, we, I'm also heavily involved in the Angular ecosystem. Uh, not as much in 2 yet, although uh, we started using it on my team. And so uh, I'm hoping to actually open source a drag and drop library at some point. Um, and I'm involved with uh, UI Bootstrap in particular, as well as uh, NG Bootstrap, the Angular 2 uh, successor to that project. Cool. Thanks, Wesley. Uh, Justin, how about you? Yeah, I'm a lead engineer at SoCreate. Uh, we're developing a screenwriting platform and uh, using Angular 2. And we really uh, do a lot of stuff with thinking about UI libraries internally for our application. 
So like these global component concepts where we have this, these reusable components that live in the kind of like a global space, yet we want to use throughout our app and, and implement sort of thing. Um, so thinking about not so much of a redistribution of those, but a use of those with that same kind of distribution kind of pattern. Cool. Uh, Dimitri, how about you? We cannot hear you, Dimitri. <laughs> oh. No. Uh, all right. So jump off Dimitri, and once you join back, you can uh, uh, fill in or whatever. Try, try Safari. Okay. Uh, for me, um, so I, I human, and uh, we are in the process of building a number of new apps, and this is like a, a topic that's close to my heart right now because we are actually trying to figure out the best way like sort of like Justin is talking about, the best way to share um, UI components among different apps. Um, Dimitri, are you back on? No. no. <laughs> All right. Okay, try again in a little bit. Okay, so let's dive into the, the topic here. Um, Kyle, uh, just sharing modules, like creating, creating a module that has code in it, utility code or whatever, um, it's pretty straightforward, like a, especially if it's like a standard node library. Uh, you, you have your JavaScript and your package JSON, and you publish it to NBM, and that's pretty much it. So what's the difference here? Like, what, what are the complexities, the challenges that you deal with whenever you are trying to have a library that has UI components? Yeah, so uh, at, our, at our company, we probably have like 25 different product teams right now working on this mm-hmm. stuff across the globe, different time zones. So uh, we need reusable components. So the hard part is deciding which ones, first of all, should be in the platform. Uh, it's got to be stuff that's really reusable that everybody needs, that's abstracted enough uh, that everybody can use it for their potential usage. But they always make, the, the way we upstream it is you make a local one in your app, uh, something that's reusable across your app that you don't want to duplicate code. But then you decide, should everybody get this? So they open a pull request. We have kind of like a round table in Slack and we decide if it needs to be put into the platform. Uh, the hard parts are then uh, making it to where it's easy to theme uh, with local SAS variables. Uh, does this belong in the core platform or should it be its own NPM module? Uh, we always have these back and forth and they're really just long discussions and then we, we come to a vote essentially. Uh, we like to put as many things in the core that we think everything will, everybody will use, just like you can pull down the whole Angular package or the whole Angular material package by itself. Uh, but then, yeah, there's always a debate back and forth what should be individual and what deserves to be in the platform. We're going to break for a moment for a message from Angular Class. This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Angular Class. If you're looking to learn the latest and greatest in modern web development techniques, or you need Angular 2 training, then sign up today at angularclass.com. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Yeah, so what are some of the criteria that you use? Is it just a matter that um, multiple things are trying to use that component that you split it out, or is there some, some other criteria you use as well? Well, the funny thing is that uh, we use pretty simple criteria. We use GitHub issues and thumb up icons on the voting of the things that people want to get into the platform, and if it just seems like a lot of teams want to use it, and then we give it a hard critique to see if they're properly Following the thing, does it adhere to the material design spec as good as it should? And is it following all the code styles that are suggested for Angular and kind of fit into our platform? So, yeah, it's really just letting 
the people vote on if they want it. And if they do, then we just make sure we tick all the boxes if it fits into our platform properly. Okay, so you mentioned a couple things there. Like, let's start off with CSS because, you know, let's say you are splitting it out to its own library and there is a style component. Actually, so there, there is an element that the component itself may have styles specific to that component, like uh, positional-based styles, let's say. But then there also may be uh, con- contextual styles that however you use that component um, styles have to be applied into it a certain way, and that may affect how you kind of build that component. So what are some of the guidelines that you use or um, you know, issues that you kind of run into around that area of how to best deal with styles for a particular component that you are sharing in a library? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, it's a challenging thing. So we just had a pull request from an outside team, our first kind of massive pull request, and it was a data table. And if you ever built one, those things are complicated. Uh, they kind of included all their own CSS in there, and they did everything in the pull request. And we worked back and forth with them and collaborated in the code review to say, hey, we actually have the, uh, the Flexbox layouts from Angular Material 1. So they're included in the core of our thing. You don't need to do this position placement. You could just use the layouts and the flexes and things like that. Uh, and then they had their own colors and styles. And I said, hey, you can actually import the Angular Material theme that they finally released in Angular Material 2. And you can style your things to where a user can simply change one set of fast variables in their style, not only the app, but your data table. So everything matches perfectly. Things like that, you know, the icons, we include the, the ligatures for, for the material design icons. So we said, you don't need to import that. You can just use MD icon and just use the name there. So really just going down the list of things that don't need to be included that make it more dynamic so it plugs right into the platform. I think this is also just a difficult problem in general because it depends on the, uh, I guess, what are the libraries that are backing uh, the library, the UI library that you're building. For example, um, I mean, like I'm involved with NG Bootstrap and we have to actually rely on the CSS cascading from Bootstrap uh, because uh, so we can't package the components as, for example, um, using true um, web components uh, with Shadow DOM and all that. We have to... uh, let uh, use Angular's virtual shadow DOM, for example, let it cascade and use appropriate ca- classes so that uh, users can override it very easily. Um, so you have to be careful about avoiding being too opinionated, I feel like, if you want to bundle libraries for reuse. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, I do think that's one of the interesting differences now between like something that was traditionally as cascading as Bootstrap CSS versus the way things are kind of being built now with like Angular Material 2. Uh, it's very, it's absolutely opinionated because it's bundled with the design spec. You're not really supposed to deviate from that, whereas Bootstrap doesn't come with one and you have to add styles on top of it. So it's an interesting uh, difference between the two. Uh, I like it to be as easy as possible and so people can't break it uh, across the company, people that I've never even met. Uh, so yeah, we, we like to where they could just change some SAS variables and the whole thing changes appearance, but it still strictly adheres to the opinionated uh, styles that we have. I actually think that's the difference between Angular 1 and 2. Angular 1 was a frame, more of an opinionated framework and Angular 2 is more of an unopinionated platform. So we're adding our opinions in our own UI library on top of their platform, basically. I think things get really challenging too when you start talking about uh, whether you're doing uh content transclusion and whether you have ng content in these components or not you know if if your component is the end of it then styling is a little bit 
you know, more straightforward. But as soon as you've got this some, a component where you want to allow other components inside of it, now how do you scope your CSS and, and stuff in a shadow DOM sort of way to allow you to style that particular theme and theme that particular component, yet let whatever parent component is putting stuff inside of it still control its children? Shadow DOM is nuts. It's awesome. It's the thing we've always wanted. Uh, Justin, I watched your talk at NGConf, and it, it finally got me to dive in. I had been following it from Polymer ever since its beginning, and I finally said, okay, now's the time. But yeah, you've got the different view encapsulations now. So uh, Angular Material turned it off, and we have it on in all of our stuff. So they figuring out when you need to get into the DOM tree, when you need to go host deep, and all this craziness to try to get down to style an element or, or override it can be very confusing, and we're still learning, really. But in general, am I hearing correctly that um, the, the specific way that uh, we're talking about um, that as far as the best practice goes um, for adding styles would be, you know, within the component, um, you know, decorator, like at the, the style uh, attribute there, adding your classes so that uh, you use the view encapsulation um, you know, the, the shadow DOM emulation so that, you know, you define those styles and, and then they appear, uh, you know, for that scope for that component. Is that what you guys are advocating or, um, Kyle, is, is, am I not uh, gathering that correctly? Is there something different that you guys do? No, you're, you're, you're pretty spot on. Uh, what, what I tell a lot of teams is if you find yourself writing a lot of CSS, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, we have such, everything is bundled so nicely, and that's why I like the encapsulation of Angular 2, that our components already have everything they need. Uh, beyond doing the SAS variables, I could see doing on a component view a couple of kind of like style overrides, and it's nice that it will only apply to that one component view. Everything's components, so it gets hairy, but I think that's a good use of, of Shadow DOM. You just, if you want to nudge a couple things over just for the one dashboard view, just do it in the shadow DOM for that one view so it doesn't bleed into everything else unless you want to, right? One of the things that we've so approached the- is, is uh, you know, there, there's several scenarios that come up. Like you say, okay, I want this component to be able to have its style kind of uh, or theme kind of dictated from its implementation. So you've got this other components going to use this component. Um, you can do things like provide a, a CSS class that you put on the host of that element and then, or, or that component. And then that component can do a host context selector or host selector and say, Hey, if I've got this class on me, I'm going to do these styles versus those styles. Right. Um, and then also looking at things like you talk about like SAS variables, um, SAS mixins potentially for, for bringing some of that stuff in, but then also just CSS, uh, properties and stuff like that. And there's so many different pieces to try and solve that puzzle of that you could potentially do it. Like that's when things get really kind of tricky of like, how do you allow somebody to style this thing? Um, yet also allow that to flow through still, um, and be configurable. I found one that blew my mind yesterday, actually. I was trying to teach a team. Uh, we were using the, the, the menu in Angular Material 2. And being a platform, they reuse things like the overlays now. It's actually all separated so it can be abstracted. I didn't realize the drop-down menu renders outside of the parent component. It was in the DOM tree. And I was trying to cascade it with Shadow DOM. And then I finally realized, oh, this thing's by itself in the DOM tree. So we had to go to traditional CSS from the, from the top of the body, basically. So... It's weird. I mean, things are are complex. There's probably 15 different ways you can solve something now. We're going to take a quick break to hear about ThoughtRam. ThoughtRam. Extend your memory. 
want to get up and running with the Angular framework, but don't have the time to read through all the documentation and tutorials on the internet? ThoughtRam's Angular Masterclass may be perfect for you. Check it out today at thoughtram.io forward slash training. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. So is there ever time that you would put um, the styles in a separate um, CSS, SCSS, whatever um, file outside of the actual component, like outside of the actual TypeScript file that has your component? Um, and if so, like how is that effectively shared? Because like by its nature, if you do that, then you're requiring the user of that library to actually have some sort of extra build step or something that hooks into their build to grab that external uh, CSS file, right? In Angular Material 2, they just they released two new files at the root of your doc. There's a styles.sass and there's a themes, or theme.sass. The style, they're both automatically compiled and included. Uh, the theme is just for the variables. The styles just acts like traditional compiled CSS. So that's where we kind of throw our, our general stuff, and then everything else goes in the specific component sass. Okay, so, so then in that case, you would expect someone using that library, just like that would be part of using it, that you know you have to include that CSS file in your build, right? Yeah, well, like I said, for us, we, we generally say only add stuff if you need to. That, that style.css is really only for their app usage, so it's empty when they get it. Uh, so they can put things in there that they need specifically for their app that they're not going to upstream back to the platform. And then everything else is just component to component. So, But you shouldn't have to go actually like include these things in the build. That they're automatically built for you. Okay. To, to what degree do, um, like sometimes, and this maybe goes beyond just styles, uh, and maybe starts branching out into um, some of the other parts of UI library, like uh, for state management. So like, you know, we, we talked a little bit about um, the theming that goes on and like when the, the parent style kind of influences uh, what this, the actual shared component style is. Um, but I guess even taking that out further for state, like, so when you're dealing with um, state, is there any best practices that uh, you follow for how you manage the state of the parent interacting with the state of the component? Yeah, well, this uh, this is all really component to component for us, or component view to component view. We naturally we follow all the best practices that Angular two is providing us now. We're trying to really stick to the standards, so anybody can come off the streets and, and use our stuff. Um, so we separate out things like services when we can and, and all the API calls, stuff like that, right? But once we get to a component view, all the logic really lies in there. Uh, and in, you have to be very deliberate with TypeScript and with ES6 and with Angular 2 about what you want to do, what, what variables you're defining and where you're going to use them. Uh, we had to add some extra HTTP interceptors on top of what you get in Angular 2 to try to make some of our CRUD work how we wanted to uh, because it's very, very opinionated and specific, I would say. That's the one part that is specific. You've got to intentionally create those functions uh, and it won't bleed unless you try hard for it to bleed. So as a general, yeah. it sounds like... Oh, go ahead, Justin. Yeah, I think one of the challenges in that is looking at going, okay, I'm building these components that are going to be reusable. Do I take the approach of using inputs and outputs and that's just what they rely on? Or do I commit to constructor injection? And when you really commit to constructor injection, at that point it becomes more complicated for somebody to consume and, and implement your component, right? There's this dependency now that the parent component or somewhere up the stream has to provide that constructor injected stuff 
for it to work. Whereas if you have an input inputs and outputs decorators, right? Somebody could just put that markup in there and specify in the markup what they're going to provide to that component. And you're kind of off and running. Justin, for the constructor injection, are you just referring to using a service that like the uh, parent has to implement? Yeah. So like, let's say you're, you're creating a component and we're talking about state, right? And you're like, okay, I'm going to hand state data to my component via an input. Well, that's pretty straightforward because now I can use that, implement that component and just put it in the markup and hand it some, you know, uh, template syntax stuff. But now if that component is expecting to receive that through constructor injection, now my parent component up the tree somewhere has to be providing that service that whatever you're getting into. And now that component, if that component's reaching into that to get its state and work with its state. I think in general, you want to stick with inputs and outputs and only use stuff like with uh, where you're injecting something and using a service if you explicitly want to do something imperative, like maybe a modal or something like that. Um, because um, if you want to reusable, then you want to have, uh, you want to keep your component like as agnostic to the state of a person's application as possible. And as soon as you're doing injection, you are actually introducing some sort of stateful uh, mechanism into it. So you can go down a very deep rabbit hole doing that. So you have to be very careful. And if you're going to do injection, it should generally be only with like maybe helper services or something like that, that your module is providing if you're building something for reuse. Completely nailed it. I don't think I have anything else to add to that. That's what we've been doing. For all of our usable stuff, we use inputs and outputs. And just for those kind of uses is when we do the injection. So yeah, nailed it. Yeah, I guess another way I've heard that, uh, being said is the idea of the dumb components, right? That like your, your library, all your components should be dumb and like um, allow the parent container to do all of the, uh, define how you do all of the like event handling and, and setting of values and all of that. So that totally makes sense. Yes. And I would like to add that actually this pattern is already like possible in Angular 1 and it probably is the way to go when you're doing stuff and creating reusable stuff in Angular 1 as well. Um, you just have different names instead of like using all the various scope, isolate scope bindings, you're using inputs and outputs. And if you want a service to inject, you can inject it in directives too, like in Angular 1. So I mean, like there's very strong parallels to how you would do it in Angular 1 and Angular 2. All right, so let's talk about the build process because I feel like this, maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like it gets complicated. Um, so, uh, you know, what is the best practices for when you want to publish a library um, and how you, I guess, A, um, what do you pre-build before you publish? And then B, what, what do you do in order to make sure that what you're, publishing fits in well with the build system of the person who's using your library? I would say the first thing you need to, before publishing your next version is pray a bit that all steps will go fine because <laughs> you need like uh, TypeScript, then ECMAScript 6, and you need CommonJS style and build UMD files and check it works with ahead of time compilation and it will not fail on universal. And then you have to check that all of this works in, for example, Explorer 9. So some, a bit of drink and <laughs> small prey usually helps. <laughs> It's like a good step on pre-publish NPM hook. Dimitri, uh, what's going on with that facial hair there? <laughs> you've, been, you've been in the joke for a little while. <laughs> that is extremely interesting. 
it's awesome. Uh, I've not seen that one before. Uh, What do you call that? I call it um, my shaver. Shaver is broken. I'm too lazy to buy a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, uh, sorry, I had to come in. So, Kyle, uh, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, it makes me want to drink too. Uh, it's, it's been the most interesting thing, you know, with all, following all the RC updates up to stable for Angular, we were trying to do everything they were doing and they kept changing at the last minute for good reasons, but it was painful. Uh, so we, we always try to mimic whatever they were doing with a little bit of blend of Angular Material 2. They have some extra build steps for the way they have to, like bringing in Gulp for certain SAS things. Uh, so yeah, like there's a difference between our, our, our platform build and like we also have like an example app. So we're also, we're always trying to do both where we have all the UMD stuff, all, all the packages and modules all ready to go. And then we have the complexity of deciding if we wanted in the core of the NPM modules versus the single NPM modules. It's a complicated build process. And we also like to ship our SAS uncompiled too with our things. So we have to move those files in the right places. Uh, yeah. I, I drink too, so that's, that's all I can What say. about for ahead of time compilation, uh, NGC? Is that, is that something that uh, is typically run before you publish? So you publish the sort of artifacts that get generated from that? We do a little both. Uh, we're not doing a ton of real AOT stuff right now. It, it was more just theoretical for us, just, just waiting for real implementations. Uh, we're just now kind of delving into what we could do in that space. But... Yeah, like we try to stick to the the ng build stuff, the built-in Angular CLI stuff when we can. But you've got to add stuff on top of it to move files into place. Uh, the last thing we're going to do that we haven't done uh, on our end, we want to ship the the minified CSS. You can do stuff like just like plunker examples and all that, right? We, we don't currently have all that build. You have to have, have to add the Angular uh, CLI for our stuff right now and Webpack. So do you, uh, these host projects that you set up for where you develop these components, um, are you doing that with the Angular CLI, creating a new project, um, using that as your host? And then how's that process for, as you work on these, these samples of, you know, you actually writing the code for the components, um, yet not really having a, another app that, or maybe you do have another app that actually is implementing and using them so you can see it in that example. Yeah, we do a lot of upstreaming. So we're building the platform while we're also, my team directly builds three other products of Teradata. So we're often dogfooding it. And a lot of times we build it local to that app uh, first. And then we turn back around and try to abstract it and upstream it back into Covalent. But uh, yeah, it can go either way. Sometimes we know we're going to need it. So we'll go, we have a married platform app and uh, an actual app using it in our repo. So we can directly dogfood it and document it while we're building it. So I begged for that with the team. They wanted to separate it, but I was like, if we don't have the docs app with the platform app, we're, we're never going to know what's going on. So generally speaking, um, are all you guys just publishing your uh, components for the browser for the, the client side, or are you also doing server side? Are you doing other platforms as well? I mean, obviously, Angular 2 has this sort of multi-platform capabilities so that you can do Electron, NativeScript, Ionic, all this different stuff. Is that something that you guys generally care about? I, I can say from, from my standpoint, uh, I haven't gotten far enough to, like actually uh, with our development to have something working, but the thing that we're trying to prototype are components actually the same component used for uh, you know browser, server, mobile. And uh, I'm only starting to scratch the surface on you know the sort of complexities involved in trying to do that. So I'd be interested if any of you guys have like tried to do that as well. 
So I was lucky to grab project which involves native script and web stuff. So and it was at the first initially uh, it was pretty hard to you know be uh, platform agnostic a bit because not everything works the same way and then you have to produce more like MVM construction where your template and controller actually component being added is dependent on the platform you use because for native script you have different inputs outputs almost and different bindings to template inside of it if you do it for web it's different again so it's not about just uh you know like replacing templates it's more like replacing templates replacing bindings inside of it to the component and more with you have a different animation for your mobile device because then you goes like swipe left swipe right they have a bit different intentions and just go back or forward so we produce we are working on uh things like uh just like dynamic component inclusion but if you will take a look on advanced algorithm to seed uh, it's pretty nice because it's replaced it complete, but we'll, uh, we have to go a bit forward and replace the component itself. So it's it's tricky part, but most probably we'll be like to, you know, uh, show some samples to the world in, in the nearest future because uh, this is the way how it will be most probably. Uh, you will it's just replace and complete with, you know, different things. not enough usually, but but it works. And it works for native, it works for web and universal. Your brain is boiling, but you know, you was I wasn't I was thinking about this thing and I had a similar application like five years ago. I was a developer and just started my AngularJS trip. And at that point, this was simply not possible with any frameworks available at that point. But right right now, thanks to Angular 2, it became actually possible. So it's awesome. That's awesome. That's a completely different experience than we're having right now, and I'm kind of jealous of some of the things you just said. Uh, we're currently, uh, we ship our things in Docker containers for all of our products, so they're nice because they're immutable. They're, they're all self-contained and have everything they need, and they can't break, really. Uh, all of our products have a, a ton of Docker containers, and we use Kubernetes to orchestrate it, so we'll, we'll deploy that out to AWS or onto a customer site on their own internal cloud. Uh, it's kind of wherever you want to host the Docker containers for, for us. We just hired a guy that came from uh, React and uh, and an Electron guy. So now I'm excited to bring in Electron to the fold. Uh, and it's really a toy right now. I mean, we've got desktop apps at Teradata, but I, I'm excited to see what we can do and what's possible. Uh, and then we'll figure out what we really need to be doing with the desktop. Cool. Yeah, I, I guess um, for the stuff that we're working on, I mean, I am interested to see whether this is uh, going to work out the way that I kind of envision. But the way I think about it is the service level, so the non-UI UI level, so take UI out of it for a second. Um, multi-platform is like right in the wheelhouse of the way that Angular 2 is set up because you can use DI, you can switch out the actual implementation of a particular service uh, so that the platform-specific versions, you know, you, whether it's in on the server or in browser or Electron or whatever, or on the mobile device, is used instead of you know some common interface. So that's easy. But the, it's, it gets harder at the UI level for some of the stuff that Dimitri mentioned, um, where it can get tricky. Sometimes the behavior is different. Sometimes there's stuff that just doesn't work, and you you can't at least currently use DI to change out the kind of components. Um, so I guess the 
thing that uh, starting to look at it, which I'd be interested to see if any of you guys have done this before, but um, you know, rely more on like the Webpack kind of build side of because it, through Webpack you can switch out um, files, switch out components. Uh, so use that as the like if you can't create a common way of um, having like a template that works in all areas, then at the very least, uh, different UI, two different files for that component. You kind of split it there and use uh, yes, just as part of your build process, um, you know, switch out one for the other since you don't have DI at your disposal. Have any of you guys tried to do that? I don't have a ton of experience, but swapping out components for different OSs makes me feel eerily like the back in the days when we used to have IE only CSS. <laughs> that just scares me, man. I want to have something that works everywhere. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, maybe I'm just uh, insane with that. So we'll see. We'll see. Okay. So let, let's uh, move on for, um, okay, so for publishing to NPM, we talked a little bit about some of the build-related stuff that goes on there. Is there anything else that's critical that you guys see that uh, needs to be included in your package when you're publishing other than the stuff we kind of already talked about, you know, the artifacts? Um, you know, what about, like, documentation? Like, how do you guys handle uh, documentation when you release for your components? For our stuff, we ship the the platform documentation on the same place where we push the actual platform. Uh, we just use we have a GitHub Pages build. Honestly, I, I don't even know if the ng GitHub Pages build works now. We, we we wrote our own while we were working or waiting for that one to to work again. It might work, but uh, we also have we wrote a little uh, Angular two Markdown processing thing too. So for docs, we'll just write a lot of Markdown docs in Angular and ship it in an Angular app. And we also do the README docs that you have to with GitHub now. It's kind of the standard for all your components. So for for us, um, you know, and we don't, we're not really building components that we're exposing out for other applications, but more for our internal, but with these global component concepts. One of the things we approached was how can we kind of ensure that people document the usage of these things so that we have that ongoing and living, right? So we actually kind of went a little bit to an extreme and did some stuff like uh, added some um, uh, audits and stuff like that that would confirm that we have documentation in place, almost like unit test to confirm that we do have documentation to go along with this global component um, all the way down to the SAS level that we have SAS variables and SAS mixins and that we actually identify that they are used somewhere um, and that we have some documentation explaining how to use them. And so we have this kind of a unit test type check to make sure. And then when we develop these components, what, one of the jobs is as you develop the component is to also keep the, con the documentation up to date for each of them of how you use it, some examples, that sort of thing. Uh, for my company, uh, we're a small company, so uh, our documentation is pretty much our unit tests. <laughs> At least you have tests written first. That's awesome. Yeah, we strive for actually, that, that, 100%. <laughs> wait, actually, that, that's another great area of discussion, Wesley, and, and I'm curious. You know, Let's talk about testing for a second because you know, typically testing for UI is tougher than you know, for services where you can just – um, straight use Mocha and you don't need to necessarily fire up a browser or phantom JS or whatever. So rely mostly on like karma or protractor, like end to end testing. What, what do you, what do you, what's your strategy for testing your components? 
I mean, for us, we try to do as much as we can using like actual browser uh, interactions. Unfortunately, um, we use uh, PhantomJS, and we actually run into some limitations of Phantom, unfortunately, when it comes to that. Because, uh, for example, if you try to uh, instantiate a new keyboard event, uh, PhantomJS is not happy about that, for example. So for us, it does create some challenges, and we have to push that off more to our um, integration level testing with, um, with, sorry, uh, with Selenium. If that got cut off, I muted myself by accident. <laughs> yeah, testing is interesting. We uh, so we know on the platform we want to have good unit tests with our components that people are going to reuse. So it's one less thing they have to worry about. You know that components can be well tested. It's kind of one of the benefits of the platform. But on the app level, uh, we push everybody to do real end-to-end and stress tests through the API. Uh, and for the UI, as since it can be a little bit more fragile on those long-running tests, we try to do kind of. Uh, functional flow end-to-end tests with, with the UI, right? So fire up a thing and do several steps until you save the item and you see it's completed and all those kind of good things. Uh, so yeah, we use just the Karma built-in with uh, NG for the NG test and we use Protractor. And with Angular 2, it's really just a, a tiny layer compared to Angular 1 for Protractor to Selenium. So we've got good QA teams writing, writing tests for that and constantly taking off the UI developers finding bugs. Do you guys feel uh, find that you have to kind of pick and choose the level of detail that you go into your UI testing versus, say, like a unit test? Uh, what I mean by that is you think about a unit test and you're, you're covering some logic, right, business logic, and you're like, I want to ensure that this is going to do X, Y, Z all the time and, and that any code changes don't break that. And that seems super important. And the UI is important as well, but the UI seems like it's it's something that's more fluid that over time, you're like, oh, I want to tweak this and maybe make this expand and, st- and contract instead of doing this. And, and how do you decide, okay, yeah, should we write a UI test for that? Or is that just kind of something that maybe will change and it's not worth curating over time, the time you might put into it to just confirm that that's still working, uh, that sort of thing? Actually, this is, uh, this is what I really miss in Angular 2 it's at the moment because uh, a while ago, for example, for .NET, the right tools, which allows you to write your tests in BDD style and express the happy flow, like business value. You can express the business value in, in a text and, this, and then just repeat this test from time to time. Uh, more of that, uh, whatever, if you will even change your UI look and feel, you'll be still be able to, you know, check the business value stuff, just fixing a bit kind of selectors, like what what does this button really means from text? Like, okay, go to the next page, and then you're just changing what how, how it implemented in your test suite. This is what I really miss in the right mo- right at the moment for Angular too, because um, unit tests is nice, but they are for developers initially. End to end tests usually written like, okay, we have those buttons on this page, and this this seems to be working, but. Uh, Really, nobody cares about like semicolons or you know like stops with spaces. Same about end-to-end tests when you s- sell a project, and uh, you should be able to respond to your customer actually at any point. Uh, does his happy flow is working or not? So if I suppose soon we will have this tool back working again with Angular two, and we'll be lucky to write like happy flow testing with BDD style, and it will be just awesome, hopefully. Yeah, we really rely heavily on those kind of happy flow, uh, business critical end-to-end tests with our stuff. And it's not just for the UI developers, right? So it's also, we have a whole test suite that runs 
and kicks off with any build. So when they change something on the API level, they'll see if they broke something also with our intent test because it uses the API. So it kind of helps all the teams. Uh, the other good thing I like about intent test is for we use Sauce Labs for trying all the different uh, OS and browser flavors too. So we just develop in Chrome on a daily basis. So it's really good for us to see if things are actually working uh, in an intent test for our browsers. And, and the way that we do it with the UI constantly changing is we add uh, IDs on elements for our QA people. And we don't use IDs for anything but that anymore uh, in the web. So we know if there's an ID on something, it's an important element that if, you, if you're going to change it, make sure you keep the ID. Does that get sketchy a bit when you don't know what the composition of the entire app running at any given moment is and ID collision? I mean, have you run into that a lot or is it really kind of... We're running collisions, time? but we need, we need to be aware of it because, you know, we, we constantly break things accidentally from the intent test and the QA team isn't happy with us. So we're just aware of it. You see an ID, be careful. Okay, I have this constant fight with my uh, testing engineers about not any ID in my application, never. Then I had to explain them what is component selector and you can, you know, you can look on the component selector and then build your path inside of it. And then we just got just fine because component selectors usually, uh, usually does not change so often. So, but this fight, no IDs in my application, it's reusable. They feel dirty. Uh, yeah, the selectors work great and, and our team jump on those quick. But sometimes, man, I just want to call it out just so we make sure not to screw that one thing up. One aspect of this that I may be missing, I maybe this may be a dumb question, but um, so in your you know UI library, like you're developing component without the context of like the entire page. So if you're using Protractor to do end-to-end -end testing, you have to kind of point it somewhere to actually run that. And unless I'm maybe I'm uh, I haven't done this enough with Angular two, but do you have to like uh, build um, in your library sort of like the context for testing um, so that the, the component like lives page so that you can actually test it? How does that work? Add samples to your documentation and test your documentation. Why not? You have a, you know, you have all needed samples and you can, you can test two pluses in one. You're testing your documentation and you're testing your components via end to end. Oh, so you're saying you have a, uh, you have a web page that's your documentation, Dimitri, and, and you put your components on there? Yeah. Gotcha. That's interesting. Do you guys follow some similar approach, or what do you what do you do, Kyle? Yeah. Well, from, from what I understand of the question, I, I think we have our unit testing for the components that we're responsible for, but they still include unit testing for the things they write within the custom app using our our UI platform. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Then you, they didn't did did on the app. Sorry. Gotcha. You, you don't do the end testing on the library itself. You do it in, no. within the context of the larger app. I gotcha. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. Uh, now, one thing that, uh, I mean, I guess I'll just plug here that is possible that I've started to do that it's a little bit more complicated uh, to set up at first. I should maybe publish a gist on this or something. Um, but using Angular Universal, the library that um, I maintain um, for Angular 2 to do server rendering, you actually can do some testing without a browser so that... Um, it's, it's only for certain types of tests, like, and it's only testing certain types of things. You wouldn't want to use it for everything. But it is possible to, if you use something like Redux, where you have, like, you're defining your state outside the component, and you then uh, run, uh, you know, you define your state, and then you create, like, a fake boot, bootstrap, testing bootstrap, 
and use AI Universal to generate the HTML and then like actually run tests. To, basically what you're testing then is just like comparing expected HTML to HTML is. So you can do that even without, you know, a browser context and firing up like Chrome or Phantom or whatever else. Um, so I, I found that a little bit useful in certain use cases for certain types of things. But anyway, uh, okay. So we're getting near the end of our time here. Um, I guess the last question that I had um, is what, uh, Kyle, what is on your wish list to, like just in terms of capabilities and features of um, you know, Angular 2 for creating UI libraries, you know, we talked about some of the challenges for, in different areas. If you could have one you know, wish or maybe a couple uh, of things that you would like to see change or, or new things kind of built so, to make your life easier as a UI component developer, what would th- some of those be? So my biggest wish, I guess, isn't directly related to building like a component library, but just in general for prototyping, because I kind of design and code. I don't really use Sketch or anything. So for quick prototyping, uh, the biggest pain point for me now in Angular 2 is when I want to create like a new view, I've got, I I wish the ng generate route thing would do everything magically for me because I've got to create the new view and the exports, and then I've got to import that in the modules, and then I've got to import that in the routes, and then I've got to define those routes in a navigation. So I need like a one-click generate a new view and auto-populate all these files for me because I feel like it takes 10 minutes every time I want to create a new view just to go update all the same place and copy and paste. Uh, the other thing is some of the missing kind of de- uh, parameters that you used to be able to do like on uh, Angular 1 with the UI router uh, for like the page titles and stuff like that, just adding different parameters onto the routes. There's ways to do that in Angular 2 right now, but it's kind of painful. So everything, all my pain is generated from the routes. <laughs> I wish uh, the Angular CLI had a nice way to publish your modules. Like, uh... Yes, yes, dude, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that is such a huge pain in the well, it's just a huge pain currently. <laughs> You'll have to edit. No, that's actually a good idea. Um, did, Wesley, did you ever submit that kind of feature request or, or talk to Mike Brocky about that? No, I actually just like realized that uh, just an hour ago. <laughs> no, I realized okay. it took no, I, longer I, I, ago, but you know, it's um, it's there are too much ways to build the same stuff, and even inside of the Angular teams, there are. Still goes discussion: Should we build with uh, Clojure, with Rollup, with Webpack, or with something else? So, how will place all this stuff inside the inside of the bundle? You do like will it be UMD in the main field? Like and all that stuff. It's still uh, still warm to you know. It's still too much fresh to say like we should do it some kind of way. But it would be really nice. Just have not not only application inside of Angular, but modules, bundles, awesome. Like I, I've, I, the reason I say this also is just because I real, I feel like it would also help the ecosystem a lot more because if it's, uh, if the barriers lowered in terms of uh, publishing uh, your plugins, then more people are more are likely to do so, and we'll have a better uh, third party ecosystem. Well, I'm sure that Mike is listening now, or he'll watch this show afterwards, and he'll have this done by next week. So I look forward to having seen the next version of the Angular CLI with the feature. You've heard it here first to be able to publish your uh, UI component library, uh, which will be awesome. Thanks, Wesley, for that idea. 
All right. Uh, and, and actually, I, I do have one uh, myself. You know, I, I, I like SCSS, SAS. You know, I, I definitely like um, the fact that um, the Shadow DOM emulation in, in Angular 2, there, there's for sure things, certain things that are nice for styles with a lot of the new stuff that's coming out. Um, but still, I, I, I've always felt that, um, you know, like when, you know, uh, certain JavaScript libraries come out that like you just, oh, this is it. This is like some people feel that way about like Webpack that like they love Webpack so much that like, this is the answer to like everything. Or, you know, it, you know, some of the React people feel that about React or whatever else. Um, I've never gotten that feeling from any CSS related technology out there, even if there's like slight improvements or whatever. So I, I guess my, my biggest hope is that somehow in the next, uh, you know, 10 years, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably have like a intelligent robot that can, you know, do everything for you, but we'll still be struggling with the best way to handle styles, uh, you know, efficiently and everything. So if, if anybody with, the, the React or Angular 2 of the uh, CSS world. That's, uh, that'll be the accomplishment of the century, I guess. Styles and package managers. I can't believe we, ha- we haven't talked about Yarn yet. <laughs> All right, so yeah. I, I, I have a wish list, um, and mine is to be able to set um, view encapsulation as well as uh, change detection globally for your app or your module, whatever, so that every time I create new components throughout this thing, I don't have to set that um, in my metadata for my components. So I wish I'd have a way to do that. I mean, that could be something that could go into the CLI as well with a little configuration and say, hey, generate all my new components with this strategy for these two things. So maybe Mike could throw that in there as well. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have a whole list from it. You might as well solve the CSS thing, too. Mike, yeah, get on the CSS thing as well. Uh, okay, Mike, cool. Yeah, Mike, uh, make a comment. NG, make it pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sure. on that note, let's go to wrap up the show with our picks uh, for today. And Wesley, why don't you start off with your pick? Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, these aren't particularly new articles or links, uh, but uh, I have uh, one link here for uh, the explanation about uh, how change detection works in Angular 2. Um, I found it, uh, I mean, I've read it before, but I found it a nice read again, uh, especially since uh, I plugged it into my app today. Um, and the other two... Oh, that, one, that, that one, Wesley, is from the uh, ThoughtRam blog. I, I, I especially yes. love, I read that one, and it's really good, and I especially love that they keep their blog articles up to date, so they'll constantly update it as the, the system changes. So, def- yeah, I agree. Definitely check that out. And those guys are very knowledgeable about Angular. I mean, uh, Pascal and uh, Christoph, I mean, they know their stuff. <laughs> and uh, the other two links I linked here is uh, for about the uh, AOT compilation for Webpack. So, like, the uh, I linked the uh, NPM uh, module uh, for that, as well as an example app that has it wired up already so that you're not uh, fumbling around because the documentation is very thin currently. Cool. Thanks, Wesley. Uh, Dimitri, how about you? So my picks will be not so much about, but I have to right now, after you said about uh, Sugram, I have to add ng-book because they are struggling with Angular 2 for, you know, uh, 
I'm already reading it for like several months. So, and they started at Alpha and they're still keeping it up to date and I'm using it for, to teach someone and it's really great. Uh, other things that is <laughs> over me this week is not so much a peak, but this product we do, it's non-profit educational project, Dollar Street, and we just released a couple of days ago. It's written with Angular 2 and we, we haven't had uh, Reddit hugs of death. So <laughs> it was more than 100,000 customers, like visitors unique per one hour. It was like a pain. So this is why I look so sleepy. <laughs> but, you know, it's a great product to check how people live in all the world and compare their income levels and, you know, see how people live around the world. Very cool. I, I like that. Thanks, Dimitri. Uh, Justin. Yeah, so uh, one pick that's uh, an example of a component library, uh, Olivier Combs, ng2-translate. I might have mentioned it before as a pick, but uh, that's a good example of seeing how uh, you could set up a project, how you could do the NPM uh, publish and stuff like that. It kind of has all that in there. So check out that library if you're looking for a place to get started with instructions on how to do that. I mean, uh, it's a good example code. And then um, I got a bunch of game picks today. Uh, Civilization Six comes out uh, midnight tonight, so that's pretty pumped about that. Red Dead Redemption 2 was announced, uh, one of my favorite series, so that's pretty cool. And then the Nintendo Switch uh, got announced today and details on that, so I'm going to have a game from uh, getting on that. Beware of Civilization if you care about productivity. <laughs> yes, very much. Just one more turn, right? <laughs> nice. Uh, Kyle. Uh, yeah, so my, my, my shameless plug is for Covalent, uh, getcovalent.com is the UI library. And the name, uh, while building on atomic design, is actually also kind of a dig at Ionic because while they're attacking the mobile for Angular, uh, we're really trying to attack the desktop enterprise. We want to give you everything you need on, on the desktop apps. Uh, besides that, the fun stuff or our, uh, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 trailer came out. Uh, I get my Google Pixel phone tomorrow, so I'm changing over from longtime iPhone user to, to the Pixel. And Battlefield 1 comes out tomorrow, so some fun stuff for the weekend. We're all going to uh, have a productivity drop over this next <laughs> couple of weeks. It's a hot um, holiday season's on us now with those games and movies. Yeah, awesome. Definitely. All right, uh, so a couple quick notes. Next Tuesday, or this upcoming Tuesday, rather, we're going to do a show about Angular in the enterprise. We have a couple, you know, from bigger enterprises. I've worked at a larger company. A couple of people on the panel have. So we're going to have a really good discussion about that, about uh, introducing new technologies and the, the politics involved there and, and how to get everybody's buy-in and, and kind of spreading, um, you know, that type of thing. And then on two weeks, uh, I'm really excited that we're going to have Kara Erickson on to talk about Angular Material, actually, which is related to our discussion topic today. Uh, so that's going to be super exciting. And uh, from my picks today, uh, I have two. So one is to check out the um, 